0: Still snowing out there? A little bit? All right. Well, we're glad to see you. Glad you're inside. Uh, we are in a series in Luke, and we're excited about what's happening this weekend at Kalahari and everything else, but we are continuing to work through the book of Luke as we study the life of Jesus through what Luke wrote to us, and uh, we've already covered the, the preliminary things of the birth of John the Baptist, birth of Jesus, we covered that, and then Tim last week covered the only incident that we know from the historical record that happened during Jesus' childhood, which happened when he was 12 years old, and the temple heard all about that last week. Now, Luke, who, who goes chronologically through Jesus' life, he picks it up 18 years later. Jesus is 30 years old. John the Baptist, who's related to Jesus in some way, is six, years, uh, six months older than Jesus. And uh, God's prophets, remember, have been silent for 400 years, the intertestament period. When the Old Testament ended and before the Messiah came publicly, it's been 400 years, no prophets from God. And people are also kind of have this spirit of expectation because a lot of them realize That one of the prophets they had, Daniel, told them that they could count the years down to when the Messiah would be here. And they knew from Daniel that the Messiah would come 483 years after King Artaxerxes of Persia signed a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Which concerned the Jewish people that were going back to Israel after their 70 year exile that happened with Babylon, which prophets predicted that that was going to happen and would end after 70 years. When that was up, then this decree's signed. And so the people know that they could count down the years. From that decree, the people in Israel, the ones who are paying attention to Daniel, know it's been 480 years. Not 483, but 480. But what happens in 483 years is that something happens to the Messiah. He is cut off, which doesn't sound good, and they don't know exactly what that means. But they know that's going to happen in three years. But for that to happen, the Messiah has to already be here. So they know Messiah's got to be here. Their expectations are super high. They know all this is coming together. And, uh, and now Luke begins chapter 3. Remember, we talked about Luke being a great historian. Even non-Christians appreciate the historical nature um, of Luke's writing because he's going to start off chapter 3 again, like he's already done in chapter 2 and and chapter 1. He's going to nail down the timeline in history when this event happens, and he's going to use six historical markers so that we can get this Right in human history exactly what time he's talking about. Luke 3, verse 1. We're going to cover some ground. Are you ready? All right. Much more enthusiastic than the first service, so I thank you very much. Here we go. Luke 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, first marker, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, you get it, And Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Do we have when this happened? Boom, this is when it happened. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. After 400 years a prophet shows up. His name is John. John's a common name, son of Zacharias, the priest. They all know who he is. John's a person who lived in history. He's actually mentioned to other historical writers, not in the Bible. We know John lived. And the, the question we might have is, why is he in the desert? Because as we look at these historical records, we realize it looks like he's been living in the desert. Why is, John, living in the desert, when he's actually son of a priest, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I don't know if John went rogue. I don't know what's going on with John. That at his birth, they knew that he would be the forerunner for the Messiah. So all this is happening. And uh, he's trying to figure all this out. Don't pay any attention to all that noise from my mic. I don't know what's going on there. He's trying to figure all this about he's wearing camels here. He's living off the land He's making, you know, he's, he's just a different guy, but the word of God comes to him, and people start realizing this guy is a prophet of God. Now, as we work through the rest of chapter three, Luke's gonna answer, just the way this breaks out, four questions, and here are the questions. He's gonna answer, why was John sent? What did he say? Who's the Messiah? Because there's gonna be a little debate about that, and then how did Jesus, the Messiah, initiate his ministry. So that's where we're going to go. Are you ready? We are ready, right? You're still ready? Good. First, why did God send John? Well, we know it was to prepare people for the Messiah. Here's the way Luke says it, beginning in the next verse, 3. And he, John, came in all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and now Luke is quoting the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So let me paint the picture for you. John's in the wilderness, camels here living off the land, different guy. There's nothing around there. It's pretty barren. This is just north of the Dead Sea. He's over by the Jordan, but it's still just kind of brown country, not a lot growing there and everything. But people are flocking to hear him because they recognize that he's a prophet of God. And so people are are showing up from everywhere. And all walks of life, non-religious people, irreligious people, even uh, outcasts are, are coming people from all different walks of life, and some religious leaders from Jerusalem. They're coming too. And when they all get there and they're around him, John begins to preach, verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, Matthew lets us know that as all these different people are lined up, Listening to John the Baptist, he's actually directing that comment specifically to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees that had come out to see John. So it's kind of a weird way to begin your ministry, right? Hey, come to church. Come on in. We're going to hear a message. And then, you snakes! Why are you trying not to go to hell? You know, it's just kind of like, whoa. That's how he starts. He's targeting the, the religious leaders that are there. And... uh And John came to warn people about God's wrath and to change their hearts and turn their hearts toward God. Now, God's wrath, a lot of people have problems with God's wrath. But God's wrath does not contradict or violate God's love and mercy. Actually, it verifies it. It's if you're loving, righteous, just, and merciful, well, then you have to stand against evil. You have to stand against injustice. You have to hate those things. So God's wrath is part of God's righteousness. And of course, today, not too many people are worried about the wrath of God because all they've been taught is that God is love, which he is, but there's also another side to that love which is righteousness, burning righteousness. And we all should be concerned about God's wrath. And so basically John's saying, hey, prepare for the Messiah. He's coming. I'm the forerunner. And he's saying, come for the baptism of repentance. And uh, basically that's saying, baptism was, the word baptized just means dunk underwater, immerse come, be dipped in water, be dunked in water, be sort of, it's a picture of cleansing, that's saying, by doing this, it's a marker in your life saying that I'm repenting, I'm changing my mind to reorient my life toward God, to think about my relationship with God a different way, to understand the Messiah is coming, he's gonna bring a new way of relating to God. He's saying, Messiah is coming, Prepare your hearts. And now, this change of thinking, which is what repentance means, by the way, repentance is required for salvation. We repent and believe. We repent and trust in Jesus. That's what faith is. But this is, Jesus hasn't died yet. This is a little different. This is repentance, it's a change of thinking that will lead to a change in your life, a, a change in the way you live. And it's a change in in relation to God in anticipation of the Messiah. So John the forerunner is saying, prepare your heart. So then, besides that baptism of repentance, what specifically was John's message? What did he tell them to do? Okay, they have this baptism, so they come to submit themselves to John's baptism. But they want to know, because he's talking about God's wrath, okay, we're going to have you baptize us, but what else do we need to do? I mean, surely that's not it. You're saying the Messiah is coming and the wrath of God's coming on us. What do we do now? Verse 8, he answers that. Therefore, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John's warning them to repent, to avoid God's judgment. And you show that repentance by a changed life or bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is not necessary to become a Christian. Bearing fruit is the fruit of your repentance. It's what happens after you become a believer. So they thought, but as they hear all this, they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking about judgment and fire and all this stuff. Hey, we're children of Abraham. We're Jewish people. We're the nation that God loves. We're God's special people. That sounds a little harsh. I don't think that really applies to us. And John's saying, don't be thinking that way. He's saying, even you, even you religious leaders, you have to reorient your thinking. You have to reevaluate your relationship with God. But they still have questions. What specifically do you mean by the fruits of repentance or the good fruit of repentance? And so you have questions from all these different people. You have questions from the crowd, questions from tax collectors, soldiers, and we're going to see all that. First questions from the crowd. They're kind of coming and saying, okay, you want to baptize us, but what do we do? How do we prove? How do we show our repentance? How do we make fruit of repentance show up in our lives? How do we live? Verse 10, and the crowds were questioning him. These are the crowds questioning John. Then what shall we do? And he answered, and he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Now, these people are expecting John to say something way more complicated than this. Okay, we repent, we change our hearts to God, and you say, and once we do that, we should show the fruit of our repentance toward God. Well, what is that? How does that show up? And Jesus basically says, hey, take care of other people. I mean, when people have needs, help them out. People need clothes, and you have clothing. Help them out. If people need food, and you have food, help them out. You know that's all. That's all he's saying. Do what God wants you to do. Be generous. Live the way God would want you to live. Kind of general. Well, now the tax collectors have a question. Now the tax collectors, they there would be kind of a, just a space around them because Jewish people couldn't even touch a tax collector who was usually also Jewish but despised by his fellow countrymen, to touch a tax collector would render a person unclean. To even touch a tax collector would render your home unclean for a time. So they're they're avoiding tax collectors like the plague. They, They thought they were thieves, robbers, traitors against the country. And some tax collectors, verse 12, also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Now, the crowd is probably going, What? Jesus, these are tax collectors. You know, we avoid these. These are traitors. They're working for the enemy. They steal from us. You know, they're expecting Jesus is going to say, Well, first, quit your job. Secondly, you know, repent. Give the money that you've stole back to people. That's not what he says. He's saying, hey, do your job honestly, with integrity, and without greed. And and if that wasn't enough, another group asks a question, and this time it's the soldiers. They're there to enforce Rome's rule over the land. These guys are the enemies. And they have have questions. They're there too. Verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him all asking John, what do we do here? If Messiah is coming, what do we do? Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That's kind of interesting. Again, probably not what the, the crowd thought. You know, They're probably thinking, throw down your weapons, quit the army, join us, And rebel, you know, don't ever kill anybody. It's not what he says. Instead, he's saying, you know, hey, don't intimidate people for financial gain. Soldiers back then made hardly any money. They just lived on subsistence kind of wages, just enough to keep them going. And so there was a huge temptation because they had the power over the local people that they could sort of intimidate their way to give, make people give money. They could make false ac- accusations. They could receive bribes during all that stuff. You know. And John's saying, don't do any of that and be content with your pay. So John's kind of sharing this no matter who you are, no matter where you're, you, you came from, no matter what situation you find yourself in, follow God, do right. That doesn't earn you salvation. That shows that you're repentant before God. But it's not just them that have questions about this fruit of repentance. We have questions about repentance. I actually, just the last couple weeks, have heard of different guys in our church that have been having kind of these groups where they talk about things and they're getting into all these details about repentance and what that means. Well, the fruit of repentance is a change in life. Here's where it gets tricky. The Bible says we have to repent in order to be a believer. Right, that's the change in our mind, the change in our attitude. But the Bible also tells us that repentance is living a different way, a change of mind that leads us to live a different direction to follow God. But that's the fruit of repentance. That is not required for salvation. That's required to show that you were saved. You know, that should show up For anybody who's truly repented, their life should change later. But but you don't get salvation by doing that. That's post-salvation. That's after salvation. It's basically the same thing we have with our four Ds. Who's heard of the four Ds here at Grace? Oh, you guys are sinking fast. You started off so good. I saw some. Who's heard of the four Ds, kind of the motto at Grace? Grace. Okay, a lot of hands, not many voices because you're afraid I'm going to ask you to say it. All right, I know, what, I know what's going on. All right, four Ds. I'm going to work you through this. They are written on the wall of our atrium so you walk by them probably a few times a week. Here we go. We exist to help people discover. That was a little weak. We exist to help people discover, decide on, Demonstrate, deploy for. Okay, you you recovered a little bit, right? So, we exist. Tell people, discover truth—truth about people, truth about God, truth about who Jesus is, truth to enable you to make a decision. Decide on Jesus is put your faith in Jesus. That's salvation. But after salvation, the expectation is that if you're truly saved, you'll demonstrate change and deploy for. You'll live for other people. You'll be other-oriented. Your life will change. It will show up in your life. That doesn't earn you salvation. That's after salvation, the fruit of repentance. So here's the question. How have you demonstrated repentance in your life? What's the fruit of your repentance when you became a believer. What's the fruit of that? How's that shown up? Now, some of you, because I know some of you, you're gonna say, my life could not have changed more. It's a 180, it's completely different. But other people, you grew up in in a a church home or kind of a Christian home or a moral home, and, and it's like, well, but still, you know, I live like this, I live like my parents lived, okay but where's the change produced in you because you're a believer? What changes have you made in your life only because you want to follow Jesus? Because that should be there in your life. So, But the most important question that they, they ask here is, they know Messiah should be here, so they, do, they just ask, who is the Messiah? They get clarification. Verse 15. Now, while the people... We're in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. they're wondering, is Christ the, is John the Messiah? 16. John answered and said to them all, "As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you." With the Holy Spirit and fire. This is kind of interesting. So he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit, meaning when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit in our life. Okay, we get that. But what about the Holy Spirit and fire? So you have a big scholarly debate on what the fire part means here. But I actually believe that this is answered in the very next verse. It's not that big of a debate. I think the answer is right here, verse 17. John continues, talking about Jesus. He can baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His, talking about Jesus, his wintering fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. He's answering it right there, and then... And it says so with many other ex, exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. Jesus is coming. He has the ability to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or fire. He's not speaking of water baptism, but the spiritual baptism that our water baptism represents today. And only Jesus dispenses the Holy Spirit to those who repent and judgment to those who don't. Because the very next sentence, saying, "Yes, yeah, some wheat gathered into the barn, shaft, those who refused, judged. And then Luke records the end of John's ministry next in verse 19. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So, John the Baptist gets a little political. He starts criticizing the king of the area, which is Herod Antipas, and there's four Herods in the Bible. They could get a little confusing. Herod the Great was his father. He was around when Jesus was born. It's not him. It's one of his sons. And uh, he starts being critical of Herod. You know, And sometimes there's a place for that as God followers, that we stand up and say things to our governments. You know, Some of you know I told you that you know, against all odds, I'm a part of this governor's evangelical advisory council thing. You know, I've met one time. You know, but, but then when he vetoed the SAFE Act, you know, I sent a letter. I mean, hey, if I'm on this committee, you know, it's probably not going to last that long. But, you know, while I'm on here, I might as well, you know, do something. So send him a letter. Well, then, then now he's actually now taken a step to kind of reverse what he had already done when he vetoed that act. You know, by making an executive decision. I don't know if you caught all this. I'm sure it was all because of my letter, right? You know, but whatever. So I'm encouraged by that. But John, he knows Herod. Herod has actually, he has a brother named Philip Herod. And these two guys have a niece called Herodias. Nice name. And Herodias is married to Philip. But Herod, who's also married, wants to marry her. And she is both of their nieces so he divorces his wife, talks Herodias into leaving her husband, his brother. You know, it's messed up. But anyway, John, he calls it out, which ends up leading to his death. He never gets out of prison because of that. But anyway, John, he's saying, repent, change your mind, because the Messiah is here. Last question, how did Jesus, Messiah, initiate his ministry? Well, first of all, Jesus is baptized Next verse, verse 21. Now, when all the people are baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Now, this brings up a huge question for us. If John and in the rest of the Old Testament they call this John's baptism because it's not the same as our baptism today. If John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, why does Jesus get baptized by John? Can you imagine John? You know he's baptizing, baptizing. We don't know how much he knew about Jesus. They're, They're related, so he knows of Jesus. Don't know if he spent any time with Jesus. You know, at this point we don't really know. But he's baptizing people, calling them, get right with God, get right with God. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in line. And then when Jesus gets there and steps into the water, we know from the other writers that John's saying, whoa, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So whether John knew for sure that Jesus was the Messiah, maybe he did or maybe he finds out during this event. We we don't know. But we know at least John sees Jesus as morally superior to himself. And then Jesus, and we're going, yeah, why would Jesus? He doesn't need to repent of anything. Jesus is sinless, completely sinless. But then Jesus tells John, hey, just let it happen. Work with me here in order. He says, just do it in order to fill all righteousness is what Matthew records from us. Jesus' baptism confirms his ministry. This is what initiates his ministry. It also brings in all three persons of the Godhead. We know God exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we hear, here we have the Son submitting to this baptism that he doesn't need personally. But we have a voice from heaven, the Father, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we have the spirit who's descending in some way, don't know exactly how this happened, in the form of a dove, whether that's a real dove, you know, we don't know what's going on there. But Jesus, and apparently at least some of the people, caught this. And so it's a validation, a confirmation of his ministry. And also, no doubt, it's instructive to us. It's an example for us to follow. And and that brings us to something. How can you demonstrate repentance? Well, one way is you follow in believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, we have one coming up in two weeks. Believer's baptism, here's who that's for. And so let's just think about this for a minute. Becoming a Christian means when you've come to the place in your life to realize that you've sinned against God and that you deserve God's wrath or judgment which happens to be separation from God forever. There's no middle ground there. You're in, or you reject him, or you accept him, you know. And so I deserve hell forever for my sins. When you come to realize that, that's discovering truth, then you have this opportunity to repent, to change your mind, change your way of thinking, and turn to Christ as the only way to be forgiven. That's how we are saved. What are we saved from? The judgment we deserve. So when we realize Jesus came, he who knew no sin, Scripture says, became sin for us. He allowed himself voluntarily to be crucified by his own creation, tortured to death in order to pay for our sins. But for that to account, for that to count for any individual, That individual has to humble themselves, realize their need, their sin, what they really deserve, and then put their faith, their belief in Jesus alone, where they trust Jesus that He paid for their sins. And if you sincerely do that, that's not just saying a prayer. If you sincerely do that, you can express it in prayer, but that comes with gratitude. And a desire to follow Jesus with your life, which would be then that with your life is the fruit of repentance. If you've come to that point and put your faith in Christ, you've come to understand all that, even if you were in a Christian home, you came to understand all that and you trusted Jesus, you made a decision, you repented, you put your trust, faith in Him, turned toward God, tried to follow Him. None of us do that perfectly. We still mess up. We just have a desire to follow him. Once that's happened, after that, Jesus is calling us to experience believer's baptism where we are dunked underwater, which is what baptism means, not sprinkled, not poured, dunked underwater, immersed, plunged under. And we do that as a sign, a public sign, to tell people, hey, here's a symbol. I'm going through this physical baptism. It's an expression to everybody around me to say, hey, I'm trusting in Christ. I'm a believer. I'm following Jesus. Every believer should do that. So if you haven't done that and you have become a believer, you should sign up for baptism. It's in a couple of weeks. You should sign up today because we're going to want to talk to you for a few minutes to so make sure you understand that. And you can ask any questions you want. If you haven't become a believer, that's the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life. You need to take care of that. And there's no better day than today. So sign up if, if you need to. So, next, that's his baptism. And the next thing Luke records because he's initiating his ministry is he gives the lineage in verse 23. When he, this is Luke recording, when he, Jesus, began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. The son of Eli, the son of, the son of, the son of, uh, we won't go for it just to save time, all the way back to Adam. He traces his lineage all the way back. We're going to skip that. So, but Luke, notice at the beginning, points out that Jesus, although everybody pretty much saw him as Joseph's son, was legally Joseph's son, but was not biologically Joseph's son because Jesus was born of a virgin. So we, we got that. Now, real quickly, how did he initiate his ministry? He got, baptism, he got baptized, but then there's one more thing. He was tempted. He, he prepares for ministry in the desert. We're going to cross over into chapter 4. This won't take long. Are you with me? Yes. All right. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And then he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then Satan says this, for it is written, now the devil's saying for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, the other, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, kind of like it is written, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, He left him until an opportune time. So just real quick, wrap this section up. Satan's introduced into the story. Now, it's been introduced already in the Old Testament. We get it. Remember, the first sin is not what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's the first sin of human beings. The first sin was Satan's angelic rebellion against God, where we believe he fell kicked out of heaven, and maybe a third of the angels was with him. And, there, and then kicked out of heaven, still has some access, but not his domain anymore, and then allowed to have dominion over the earth. So he has influence over our world today for a limited time. He knows the Bible. He knows his ultimate destruction for his rebellion is going to happen. And he wants to take as many people as he can with him. The devil does not want you to repent. The devil wants to destroy your life. He wants you to be with him in hell, separated from God, forever in torment. That's what he wants for you. He's destructive. He roams the earth looking for whom he can devour. And so he gives these three temptations to Jesus, which is weird because Jesus is God. But Jesus is God, but Jesus also has taken on humanity. Humanity. So the devil sees an opening here, a weakness, if you will. So he approaches and says, hey, you're hungry. Turn that rock into bread. You're the son of God. And Jesus all three times responds with scripture. It's actually all out of Deuteronomy. He says, man, you know, it's not all about feeding our appetites. Is kind of what Jesus says. Man does not live by bread alone. And so then he says, well, hey, let me me show you the kingdoms of the earth. You know, and probably they go up to some mountain and it's sort of supernatural, just all the kingdoms, maybe future kingdoms, everything. Bow down before me, Satan's saying this, because I've been given dominion over the earth and I can give it to who I want. And Jesus is like, what? Worship God only, you know. And so then, last-ditch effort, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down. And now the devil's using Scripture. He's saying, because God's promise, nothing's going to happen to you. Of course, Jesus was crucified, so we're wondering about the misunderstanding there. But throw yourself down. God's angels are going to protect you, even in your humanity. You don't have to worry. You know, and, then God, and then Jesus is responding, hey, We don't misuse the word of God to twist it around to figure out how we can use it for our own purposes. We don't misuse God's freedom. So we can follow those same examples when we are tempted. Notice I didn't say if we are tempted, right? We can use Jesus' example when we are tempted because we all have temptations. We all have temptations. We tend to look down on people that have different temptations than we do. We all have temptations and some temptations are harder for others. Different temptations are harder for different people. But Jesus has already given us a pattern here. Every time we're tempted, we should turn to God's truth because it's almost always a way that we're tempted to satisfy maybe some even good God-given desire. But we're tempted to satisfy that in a wrong way against God. And so we keep looking to his truth. It is written. What does God say? And then just a reminder that when that temptation's over, Satan will never leave us alone on this side of heaven. He will always wait for an opportune time. So what have we learned? Repentance is a one-time act for salvation that continues on every day in our life. We repent by changing our mind about God and how we relate to him. That it's not, hey, if we do enough good things or we follow enough rules or if we're religious enough, we go to heaven. Bad thinking. That's what the Pharisees thought. Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the supernatural. Who knows what they're thinking? God's telling us, but that's how we think. That's how our culture thinks. If I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. God is saying there are no good people. And nobody can do anything that earns heaven. The good is what we're supposed to do. That doesn't erase one sin from our life. And God is a righteous judge who must, by his very character, the character we would want in him, must punish sin, which leaves us in a precarious position, as we all deserve to be punished for our sin. But God made a way through his son Jesus that he would come, be without sin, but allow his own creation to torture him to death in payment for our sins. The only one who didn't deserve to die died for us. He who had no sin became sin for us. And, but it doesn't count for everybody. He has the winnowing fork. He's deciding who's repented, who hasn't, who's humbled themselves, who hasn't, who follows me, who doesn't. We have to put our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation recognizing there's no good works we can do to add to that when we do that God will come into our life by way of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit our life will change from the inside out if your religion today if your Christianity is only internal and never shows up externally that's not Christianity that that faith will die God is calling us to follow him. But our following of him does not save us. It's our turning to him in faith. That does with a desire to follow him in the future. Most important decision you'll ever make. If you have questions about that, we'd love to see you in room one after this last closer. And again, if you haven't been baptized and you should be, sign up. Let's stand for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making a way because we are helpless to save ourselves, you made a way through your son Jesus who died for us. And you invite us to ask for forgiveness and put our faith in Jesus alone so we can be saved and be with you forever. Thank you for that greatest gift. Father, help everyone in here consider that if they have it made that decision. Help them to make that decision today. And then follow through with living the way you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray.